There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Grant's microphone. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran. And with me today, retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. A little uh, disturbed about this latest report about the subject we're going to talk about today, the Uvalde shooting, but uh, I'm Okay. You know, with this um, Uvalde shooting, right from the beginning, we know we knew as police professionals that something went really, really wrong. And we tried to hold back a little bit till it became so evident that it was so, so wrong that there was no way to defend any of the actions that uh, numerous of these police departments took as a unit or separately together. It just was so off of the tactical response to an active shooter that there was no way uh, to support this. And one of the other disturbing things was from the very beginning, the reports that came out from law enforcement, that were all trying to cover your CYA stuff, cover your ass type of stuff that wasn't true. There was so much false information given And in addition, there wasn't enough information given in a timely fashion that you questioned the information that was coming out. And that's now today we have this 77 page report. Uh, And I'm quoting from the New York Times report on Uvalde shooting finds systemic failures in police response. The decision to finally confront the gunman was made by a small group of officers and could have been made far earlier, the report found. The first comprehensive assessment of the law enforcement response to the deadly shooting in Uvalde, Texas, found that blame for the failure to swiftly confront the gunman rested not only with the police chief, but also with the scores of state and federal officers who gathered at the deadly scene but did not act. The 77-page report, released Sunday by a special Texas House committee, represented a broad indictment of police inaction at Robb Elementary School, citing systemic failures that left the school inadequately secured and the police officers who responded mired in confusion and bad information. Nearly 400 officers responded to the school that day, yet the decision to finally confront the gunman was made by a small group of officers, including specially trained Border Patrol agents and a deputy sheriff from a neighboring county. The report found, concluding that others at the scene could have taken charge and done, done so far earlier. The findings represented the most complete outside account of what took place during the 77 minutes between when the gunman began firing inside the classrooms and when the police finally stormed in and ended the May 24th massacre that left 19 students and two teachers dead. Horrible. Horrible, and that's not the end of the report. Uh, there's more in the report, but I want to give you a chance 
uh, to weigh in and comment on on uh, what you what you feel about this. Well, I think the report should be titled uh, one of the things that you said: systematic failures. That's the 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 major uh, oversight that I could see here. It was systematic failures um, on a on a level that led to tremendous tragedy and loss of life. Now, um, I, I read in the report there was no communication between this army of officers. You had 400 officers. I looked at the uh, New York post and the front page said standing army. There were almost, or uh, maybe more than 400 police officers responded to the shooting. But what good is it if you don't have communication between the officers? Now, I guess several agencies responded uh, to the location and, uh, I get it. That's great that all these uh, officers responded. But if you don't have communication between them, uh, you wind up with systematic failures, just as the report stated. So I think that that's one of the things that I think is very, very important that we can learn from this incident going forward. One of the other things I thought that uh, was very important and needs to be pointed out. Um, they said there was numerous lockdowns at the school because it's near the border and there would be these runaways that were crossing over the border. So when there would be a car chase of, uh, illegals coming over the border and they would run from the, uh, border enforcement agents that, uh, they would lock down the school. So there, apparently there was quite frequently lockdowns at the school. So what I think happened is they, they started to take up a posture where it's, well, here's another lockdown. You know, uh, the lockdowns at the schools weren't taken as seriously as they should have been. Either it's a drill or it's a real uh, lockdown. You don't know at the time when the lockdown goes into effect. However, every lockdown needs to be treated as if it's an active shooter lockdown that could save lives. There's different things that are implemented in these schools with regard to locking doors and hiding and all the different things that we do in drills. So I think that uh, uh, the bottom line is maybe people at the school became a little complacent because of the amount of these uh, these false alarms, these lockdowns that were just a car chase in the area or someone jumping over the border and running through the area. So I think that's another thing that's important. And, uh, you know, uh, when we point out these systematic failures, I'm not trying to point mm -hmm. fingers at anyone or Monday morning quarterback. This, these are the things we have to learn from this horrible incident. There's something has to come out of it in a positive way to prevent it going forward in the future. Because, Bill, you and I have said this before. The chances this may happen again are there, okay? And they're probably greatly there. And so we have to take all of the things that we learned from this incident and try and implement them to prevent it. Because if we could save a life, that's really the goal of what we're doing here. Isn't that, Bill? Absolutely. I just... Oh, we lost your volume, Bill. I just want to get back to the report again. Uh, and one of the things that it also says, it says uh, the report found that a flawless police response would not have saved most of the victims who suffered devastating injuries when they were shot with a high-powered AR-15 style rifle by a gunman who had been waiting for his 18th birthday to purchase the weapon legally. Some died on the way to the hospital, the report noted, added in a final footnote, that it is plausible that some victims could have survived if they had not had to wait for rescue. If there's only one thing that I can tell you is there were multiple systemic failures, State Representative Dustin Burroughs, who spearheaded the investigation, said at a news conference on Sunday. 
Several officers in the hallway or in that building knew or should have known there was dying in that classroom. They should have done more, acted with urgency. Mr. Burroughs added that it would be up to the individual agencies to hold their officers accountable. The goal of the committee, he said, was to provide relatives of the victims and the public with information. The officers waited, the report found, even as the at least one high-ranking official, the acting chief of the Uvalde Police Department, learned that a teacher was wounded but still alive and that a child had been calling 911 for help from inside the classrooms. The committee found that none of the officers who learned of the calls advocated for shifting to an active shooter-style response or otherwise acting more urgently to breach the classrooms. After the report came out, the mayor of Uvalde, Don McLaughlin, said the acting chief during the shooting, Lieutenant Mariano Pargas, had been placed on administrative leave and that the city had begun its own internal investigation. The city released body camera footage documenting the actions of the Uvalde officers at the scene. You know, there's going to be a lot more reports. There's going to be a lot more investigations. I I see a lot in our own um, chats of people saying, why aren't these officers fired? Are they going to get fired? Are they going to get prosecuted? I mean, wow. Wow. I mean, they most of them, and I would probably all of them, responded in good faith. They made horrendous decisions, yes. But does that equal being fired? Does that equal being prosecuted? And again, we know the big picture is that 19 children were massacred and two adults. And there's... You know, we can't, it can't get any bigger. The stakes can't get any bigger than that. But is this something that you would really prosecute people for? That, I mean, obviously, their intentions were to do the right thing. They did not do the right thing, but their intentions were to do the right thing. Billy, I'm going to go right back to the uh, failure of communication with that uh, last statement that you're making about the fact that people are calling for uh, prosecutions and firings. Now, th- there was some communication to the incident commander that this child was calling 911 and there was still a teacher alive. However, I don't think that it was being transmitted to everyone that was on the scene. Now, anybody that was inside that school or very close proximity to the outside of that school should have been in communication with all the moving parts that were taking place. You know, Um, we had the luxury in the NYPD of having a radio system that was fairly good and everybody was on the same frequency, so to speak. So I don't know if all these different agencies that responded, they had different frequencies on their radio. If that is the case, that needs to change because when you have a local, uh, you know, incident going on, uh, everybody needs to be on the same band, the same frequency to communicate because communication is so, so critically important in these type of situations. So maybe that has something to do with it. I don't think, I think the small group of officers that they talk about, the border patrol agents that decided to breach, they might've been right in front and heard the communication that uh, the 911 calls from the child and the teacher still being alive. And they decided to breach. Uh, It did take quite a long time. They talked about the fact that they don't believe that a lot of these people would have survived their injuries. However, they did state, and I believe this to be true, there would have been some saving of life 
had they breached earlier. I think that that's, there's no question about that. So again, uh, these are the things that we have to maybe improve upon. Communication is so, so important. It sounds like the, the incident commander claims they didn't know that he was in the, the incident commander. However, the protocols called for him to be the incident commander. But again, uh, as Pat Riley talked about, the police commissioner of Nassau County talked about when he was on our show, the incident commander was the first officers that get there. Let's get in. Let's, let's breach. Let's yeah, get Phil, Phil, I just want, I just wanted to get into that folks. One of the things that um, we're talking about, one of the things that a lot of people try to hang their hat on or try to uh, get cover behind is what Phil just said is so important is the first officer or first officers on the scene. That's their decision to go in. They don't have to wait for a boss. This is a life and death situation. They're hearing shots fired. There's a guy killing kids. They do not have to wait for a chief, for a commander, for the mayor. They don't have to wait for a decision. The decision is their decision. You go. This is an active shooter. Confront the shooter. I don't know how many times we have to say that in this broadcast. Confront the shooter. Bill Bratton said early on, two, a day after this, move toward the shooter. You move toward the shooter. You do not wait. People are getting killed. That's why it's called an active shooter, because he's actively killing people. Let's not talk about it segueing to a hostage situation. Bullshit. This is an active shooter. Move toward the shooter. They did not do that. Whether you're a police officer, you're the lowest rank that gets it. You're in charge, buddy. You are in charge. And, you know, there's a lot of people hiding behind the command system. No, you are in charge, officer. Police officer, you are in charge. Make a decision. One of the other things that I saw in the report that I thought was pretty telling, at one point, the incident commander was uh, actually calling the shooter by name. So they knew his name. I guess they must have ran the uh, information off of the car or the vehicle or whatever. So they had information early on that they were actually talking to him in Spanish and English by his name. And listen, uh, I, I really feel that my instincts now it's easy for me to Monday morning quarterback this, but my instincts is when they went to the door and the shots were fired through the door, they retreated. I would have still been engaging that door. I would have been knocking at that door, throwing things at the door, maybe getting some type of a stick or a pole, drawing the gunfire towards that door because you could have had situation where the person that was getting close to the door would have been being covered by the other officers, whether it be a pole or a stick. And I think that they could have, you know, created distractions, bring the gunfire fire towards the door. Well, the bottom line is someone, someone's going to get shot. A police officer is going to get shot, and that's what he signed up for. He's got to confront the shooter. There's no hiding behind the door. It's confront the shooter. Go get the shooter. Someone is going to get killed. An officer is either going to get killed or wounded. Let's go to this videotape here. The state representative, Joe Moody, a vice chair of the Texas House Committee investigating the Uvalde shooting massacre, had this to say when the report was released. It's hard to hear that there were multiple systemic failures because we want to tell ourselves that systems work. We want to tell ourselves there's one person we could point our fingers at. We want to tell ourselves that this won't happen again. That's just not true. What happened here is complicated. And Representative Moody is joining me right now. Good morning to you. Thanks so much for being with us. And I think what you said there was so well said. Uh, the fact is, it's not one person, it's not one agency, it's not one reason, but 
Is what your committee found new or just further evidence of what we've been hearing for months now, that there was a lack of leadership, that these officers with bulletproof vests and weapons had waited too long to act, and that there were problems and failures on the school campus as well? Thank you for having me, first of all, and I appreciate um, your attention to the detail on this because it it does matter. Uh, It does matter. The context matters. I think that's the most important part uh, of the work that we did. You know, so much and so many times in, in, in society today and policymaking today, we start with the answer and don't care about the facts. Uh, and, and, and our important work here was to give people stable ground to stand on, to understand what what the facts were, uh, how that unfolded, um, the tragedy of those moments uh, and, and the lessons that we can learn going forward. We know now that the training that officers received wasn't followed. Uh, we know that, you know, we know that things should have unfolded differently uh, in, in that hallway and decisions were made that compounded the earlier errors uh, and never were corrected. You uh, have this new video that was released from inside the school. I, I think this is the first time we're actually seeing children who weren't inside that classroom who were either in hallways or in other classrooms being evacuated from the campus. What was learned from that video? Uh, these are body cam videos from the Uvalde Police Department. I mean, we were, it was made available to us in the committee. Uh, all of the, th- these are videos that I have, I have viewed prior to this. We've viewed every body cam that was available um, that day. And so um, there is a part of this story when they discover that, that, that children are in the other rooms. Uh, this evacuation happens very quickly and very urgently, and they move the children and teachers off site to the funeral home, which is across the street. Uh, this part of the this part of the uh, the effort was while did not begin in an organized fashion uh, went very very quickly and very very uh, well once it started and so uh, it, it, it certainly should say should say that about the evacuation of the other children that are in that building once they're discovered. You know, I hope when we do stories like this, I think that we can finally get to some type of answer. What can we do to prepare and prevent something from this happening again? How much responsibility, and I'm not pointing blame here at all, but what responsibility does the district have in terms of the day-to-day safety safety of their campus with findings that the doors uh, were an issue, the locks were an issue, doors were propped open that should have been closed? You know, I had, a, in addition to the meeting with, with some of the families yesterday, had an opportunity to sit down with uh, a handful of teachers from, from that hallway. And we, we had talked to them previously as witnesses. And so I talked to them uh, again. One teacher uh, said this, and it was, it's very profound when I think about, when we're talking about systems failing, this was a very profound statement. She said, had I done everything correctly that day uh, by my training, uh, the result could have been still deadly for me and my kids. That tells me that, that the system we have in place does not reflect the reality that they live in. When we ask teachers to do certain things, but we don't have the most uh, modern uh, safety mechanisms or, 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 or things that recognize the challenges that they face in the classroom every day, that's a problem of the system. Because what I find is some of the most heroic people in this story are the teachers in that hallway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and you're getting a little emotional here now but you were emotional at this meeting as well. What can you tell these victims' families? Um, I left them um, with a promise uh, and they, they asked for uh, accountability. That was one of the largest asks they made. And, and I said that, that I am accountable to you. 
And, and I made the same promise that I made to my community in El Paso uh, nearly three years ago was that I, I would never stop working on this. I would never stop focusing on, on making our communities, our state safer and better. And so that's a solemn promise I made to, to, to them and, and we'll, uh, we'll never forget it. Texas State Representative Joe Moody, thank you uh, for your time. And obviously you clearly have a passion to serve this community. Uh, I know it's squarely on your shoulders and, and hopefully there are a lot of other people who feel the same, that we all should be accountable. Thank you. You know, one of the most amazing things said there was by a teacher that said, even if I would have done everything correctly, it still may not have worked out well. It still may, all the children still may have been killed and I may have been killed. I mean, a telling thing to, to say, you know, uh, are we expecting too much from our teachers? Um, not enough, in my opinion, was expected, maybe well, not expected, but not enough was, of course, done by law enforcement. Uh, it, it's, it's so heartbreaking to think that kids were in that classroom shot for over an hour, bleeding out, and maybe had the entry been made much sooner, maybe they could have lived if they would have gotten medical attention much sooner. Maybe not as many kids would have gotten shot if they would have hit that door, you know, in the first three to five minutes. No doubt, not as many uh, kids would have got shot. Maybe, you know, who knows? I can't, you know, I can't predict how many would have got, gotten shot. But I mean, everyone knows, you know, that, that's why when you play football as a kid, there's do overs, you know, in real life, there's no do overs. You know, you don't get a do over, you get one shot to do it right. And if it goes wrong, uh, the horrible consequences are what we see right here. Think about what we're asking our schools and our teachers to do in 2022. Now, when we went to school, Bill, these things didn't occur. And a school was kind of a safe place. And, you know, you're asking teachers that are taking an occupation to work with children. And now you're asking them to be warriors, so to speak. You're asking them to be uh, you know, a combat mode. So again, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, I think those words from that teacher are very powerful that even if she did everything that she was supposed to, uh, the results still may have been tragic. But uh, in the in the world we live in today, we cannot allow things like a broken lock on a door or complacency to take place because of numerous uh whether they be uh, false alarm lockdowns or drills, we cannot allow that to occur going forward. If a, a, a door is not functioning properly, it needs to be fixed immediately, if not sooner. You know, it has to get done. Uh, the protocols with the schools, as far as one way in, one way out, doors locked from the inside, all of those different things, classroom doors, you know, class starts. What's the big deal about going to the door and locking the door? You know, these are the things we talked about with the police commissioner, Pat Ryder from Nassau County about slowing down the shooter. So I think all of those things are very, very important. You know, Bill, there's one thing that's missing from this report, or at least I didn't see it. Maybe it's in there. I didn't see it. The breach was successful. I want to know about that because if the breach was successful at an hour and five minutes or whatever it is into the incident, why couldn't it have taken place sooner? Uh, they talked about waiting. It could, for it could have. It could have. It was a decision. The decision right. makers weren't there. They, the um, what do we call them? The uh, the mediators weren't there. You know, 
the we talk about guardians and we talk about warriors. The warriors obviously weren't there. The warriors got there and they took it over. They took the you know they took him down. Right, but how long were the warriors there? And again, I want to know what took place. The first officer through that door. Did he meet with gunfire? Was the perp taken out rather quickly? What what was the situation? I think that's very important. It's telling to uh, maybe point out things that took place. And, and again, like I said, had that breach taken place sooner, perhaps there could have been some life saved. Uh, how did they go in? Did they just pull the door open and go right in? And they talked about the uh, the ballistic shields that they waited for a rifle rated ballistic shield. Now I talked about this in the past. Most of those shields will not stop a rifle round from an AK-47 or whatever it is. Uh, so again, they said that that specific shield didn't uh get to the scene until i think it was 12 23 p.m which is obviously uh almost you know 40 minutes in 50 minutes into the whole incident so again they were looking about you know saving themselves obviously and safety but i think that uh, there could have been a lot more done we talked about it numerous times but these are all important things but i really don't think there was a lot of information about the actual breach that's the thing i want to talk about you know phil this this is uh this is bill bratton and this is three days, three days after this shooting occurred. And so this is th this new information isn't that new. Let's listen to what Bill Bratton said. Of the approach, it appears law enforcement took in Uvalde. We know now that at 1140, the gunman entered the school. It was at 1247 that the tactical team arrived and got in and finally was able to kill him. That's not to say, as we've said many times, there were not brave officers who confronted him initially, but were outgunned. But based on what you know, what's your assessment here? Well, a lot of what we're dealing with, Willie, as you know, is speculation at this stage because law enforcement in Texas has been an embarrassment in terms of the information they've been providing, uh, the misinformation they've been providing. I teach this in terms of communications in times of crises. And you always start off with the information as preliminary, subject to change. The information they've been putting out now two, three days after the event has been an embarrassment because there was so much misinformation. So we really don't know at this stage what happened in those first 12 minutes, that first hour. And what we do know is that there seems to have been a violation of the basic tenet of active shooters, which is that you move to the shooter. No matter what, you move to the shooter to save lives. And officers around the country since Columbine now for 30 years have trained to do that. We're going to need to find out in the days and weeks ahead that this department trained for it. Did they in fact do it? I'm now reading news stories about some individual officers who effectively did do that in that school. What's also missing here really even four days into this event is there's no schematic about this school. This is not one building, it is multiple buildings, multiple classrooms in multiple buildings. So they should be. So three days after this shooting, Bill Bratton had said on national television, the officers needed to move toward the shooter. They didn't do that. In another uh, interview, he talked about the failure of leadership, that there was no uh, cohesive leadership of directing the officers uh, on what to do. I used to teach college, and I used to teach uh, courses on active shooters. And if they tell civilians to throw things at an active shooter, just think of, of that. If you're an unarmed civilian, they're telling them, to throw things, to pick up a desk, throw it at the shooter, because it's that bad.
the guy's not going to stop killing people. So unless he stopped, you would never in any type of security have someone tell you to throw something at, at a shooter or an assailant. But in this instance, yes, because an active shooter and the word, the most important word there is active. He does not stop until he stopped. Bill, what you're describing there is the term and the phrase run, hide, fight. What that means is if you're in a supermarket, a mall, or in a school, and someone comes in, an active shooter, if you have the opportunity to run away and get safely away, that's the first thing you do. Secondly, if you can't, you're in a closed-in area, hide if you can. Get far away from the shooter as possible. And then the third thing is if there's no other alternative, you need to fight pick up any object, throw it at the, the shooter, distract them. These are the things that they teach in drills, uh, uh, active shooter drills in schools, in malls, uh, any public place. Those are the things to remember. Run, hide, fight. Very, very important. It may save your life. Uh, unfortunately, that's the world we live in today that we have to discuss those type of things. And people that aren't warriors, aren't in law enforcement, aren't in the military, you have to do what you have have to do to survive. God forbid someone walks into a mall, a movie theater, a store, a supermarket, whatever it is. Just try and keep those things in your mind. Run, hide, fight. I'm going to play a little bit of this. This is um, interviews with some of the, the family members in regards to this. Anguish, a young, boisterous family with five little girls, now shattered. I won't see my daughter again. Can you tell me about how you got this news. I was at work. She called me to get to the school. Went to the school and tried to get in the building. The police barricade pushed me back out. So I just stood on the sidelines and watched this whole thing play out. I can't imagine what it would be like to be standing outside those doors wondering. As long as they ever. It was, it was the longest day ever. Steven Garcia and Jennifer Lugo remembering their little girl, Ellie, as they try to process her senseless death. What would you want people to know about your Ellie? Sweetest, sweetest girl you've ever had, ever had, Jasmine. I had the honor of calling her my daughter. Next week, June 4th, would have been Ellie's 10th birthday. She was looking forward to having a pool party to celebrate. Told her we're going to have a party that her face just lit up and, you know, it's, yes, that was uh, the last time I saw her. Hey guys. Um, Ellie loved basketball and TikTok and the colors pink and purple. She wanted to be a cheerleader and was already planning her quinceanera five years away, even picking out a dress. A little girl who lit up every room and every picture. She loved to dance. She loved to have fun. She loved ramen noodles. And I mean, she just loved life in general. Ellie and her older sister, just one year apart, inseparable. And she often cared for her little sisters. The, the younger ones, they still don't understand their sister's not coming home. And Ellie was devoted to her grandparents, doting on them, spending most weekends at their side. <laughs> it happened, it happened. It's hard to even put into words. Her grandparents still struggling with the reality of what happened. Tell her you love You're there for 
you know, she wanted to come home. So my daughter said, no, you need to stay in school. Try not to miss so much and, you know, get smart. So she stayed. And this is the result that we got. School's supposed to be safe. Yeah. For every child lost, 19 of them, there are stories like this and parents who will never be the same. 10-year-old Amory Joe Garza was another fourth grader at Robb Elementary. She was a real good student. She was a very good daughter, friend, uh, very playful, very silly. Amory loved to draw, do science experiments, and make people laugh. She wanted to be a YouTube star one day. She was a perfect daughter, yeah. She was a perfect daughter. When he heard about the shooting, Alfred Garza III raced to the school. While waiting for news about his own daughter, Garza says he tried to comfort the children who did manage to get out. They were just uh, overwhelmed and just crying. And so as many as I could, I'm, hey, do you know your mom, dad's phone number? Let's call them. Let's let them know you're okay. That's what I try to do to bring some comfort to the, to the kids, you know, let them know that, hey, mommy and daddy know you're okay. You're safe. You're here. You're not in any harm. Um, and just, just tried to uh, calm them down as best I could. And obviously I was, I was getting a little overwhelmed myself, but I was trying to keep my cool for the kids. Um, you know, I was trying not to think about it. I was just expecting for her to walk through that door any, any, at any moment, you know. You were helping those kids yes. having no idea how your little girl was. Yeah, yeah. I was waiting for her. <laughs> he waited six hours with the rest of her family, praying for a miracle that never came. It must have been... It was a nightmare. Such a painful. Unbelievable. You know, it's like uh, when you talk about how difficult uh, the job of law enforcement can be, imagine having to face these parents and uh, in a less than stellar response to this, to this attempted rescue. What do you tell them? What do you say to them? You know, and I know that uh, the media, of course, loves to stoke the flames of, uh, of dissent and uh, stay on this. But these are real people. These are real people that lost children. And they have to live with this every day now that their little daughter, their little son is not around anymore. And, uh, you know, time heals, but it's going to take a long time to heal this wound. Billy, I got to tell you, just to watch that, it's very emotional. It, it gets you choked up. It's tough to watch. but um, And there might be people, whether it be in the chat or uh, some of our subscribers or listeners that might be upset by that. But you know what? I think we have to recognize it. We have to face it. Those families are going through that horrible, horrible situation. We have to take that emotion and that hurt and we have to turn it into like a positive. And what I mean by that is the positive is we have to prevent this from ever happening again. We have to take it very seriously. It has to be something that it's just the reality of life in 2022 that we have to be able to recognize and we have to deal with it. And I think that why should only the families suffer that pain? I think we all need to suffer it a little bit and recognize it and just, uh, you know, listen, we're never going to know what it's like if you're not in that situation. But I think that being sensitive to it, being cognizant about it and having it in our, in our, uh, in our minds, and perhaps there's something we could do going forward to prevent it again. Uh, you know, it, it's terrible. Just everybody should just have a good thought for those families and a prayer and just keep them in your thoughts and, and just, I mean, I don't even know how, 
I would be able to go on if I was one of those people. I mean, it's Patrick, just, it's uh, Patrick Glanville, uh, Phil, the cops refused to engage one guy with an AR-15. The two aces, nothing about assault weapons. Patrick, we acknowledge the failures of law enforcement in this. And uh, 100%, we acknowledge that this was a failure. And like, here's this 77-page report, a systemic failure. Yes, we have to acknowledge that. I, I, we're not going to hide behind, you know, anything. This this was a failure. This is a failure resulted in 19 kids being killed and two adults. And, you know, could it have been a law enforcement success by an earlier confrontation with the gunman? Undoubtedly. So, no, we're not hiding behind this, and Phil's not hiding behind uh, that they, the cops refused to engage or didn't engage quickly enough. We acknowledge that, and it, and it's we we share the shame of law enforcement with this. Absolutely, I just want to comment to to Patrick that um, I said numerous times I would not have stood around and waited. I would have been engaging the gunman one way or another immediately had I been. That's me personally. Had I been the first on the scene, but there was something else. He he brought up the Second Amendment. There was something in the report that I thought was very, very important. It says neither existing gun laws or the expanded background checks passed by Congress in response to the shooting that would not have prevented the gunman from obtaining the weapons. I think that's very important that it, this is not about the gun laws. I think it's and we've said it numerous, numerous times. It's about the trigger puller and it's also about hardening the target, slowing down the gunman or the person that's going to assault the school. So I think that those are two very important things. Um, again, the, there's definitely failures here. I think everybody's in agreement. They had 400 officers there. It was an army and they waited way, way too long to, to breach that door. And we know that now, and I don't think we're hiding behind that or trying to protect anybody in this. It's not CYA time. It's let's tell the truth time and let's not let it happen again. 100%. Uh, you know, f folks, uh, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If uh, you're not subscribed to our show, please go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. It's free to subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And if you want to join our YouTube family, we have five different levels. And you, you see the folks with the green font. They're members of our YouTube channel members. And we have five different levels for that. Um, folks, you know, this is uh, coming out today. Of course, the 77-page report, the systemic failure. And we're going right to it. We're not hiding behind it. We're not hiding and trying to say it doesn't exist. There was a failure here. There was undoubtedly a systemic failure. With a scathing new report released late yesterday, it's on the Uvalde schools shooting, and it, the, the report says there was a systemic breakdown. Yeah, it happens to be the most comprehensive yet. It's highlighting how many safeguards meant to protect students just simply failed. That quote from the Texas Tribune was shared a lot overnight across social media. It really sums up the findings. In total, it says 376 law enforcement officers, a force larger than the garrison that defended the Alamo, descended upon the school and a chaotic, uncoordinated scene. The group was devoid of clear leadership, basic communications, and sufficient urgency to take down the gunman. And as we now know, 19 mm -hmm. students were killed, two teachers as well. We've got the latest on that. And also, unfortunately, another mass shooting, this one inside an Indiana mall. 
NBC's Sam Brock leads us off on a Monday morning. He is in Uvalde for us. Sam, good morning. Savannah Hoda, good morning. Every time you think this couldn't get any worse, it does. That report talks about systemic failures. Three unlocked doors on the exterior of the building. As you said, Savannah, nearly 400 law enforcement officers who were here that day in Wi-Fi connectivity that was so poor, some of the alerts to teachers were delayed. Now we're getting a look at body cam footage, horror inside of those hallways. And we have to warn you, the images are disturbing. For the first time, the public is getting a chilling picture of early moments inside Rob Elementary from police body camera footage. Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? Early chaos and glimpses of calls to action. We got to get in there. We got to get in there. Just keep shooting. That plea coming minutes after the massacre began. But that first interaction, the only time the officers are seen in the video physically confronting the gunman for well over an hour. At one point, Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo seen trying to reason with the shooter. Let me know if there's any kids in there or anything. This could be peaceful. Arredondo, who's on administrative leave, maintains he was not the incident commander that day. This new footage released as the most comprehensive report to date conducted by the Texas House finds law enforcement, which ultimately reached 376 officers, didn't honor their most basic responsibility. The author's writing, they failed to prioritize saving the lives of innocent victims over their own safety. Several officers in the hallway or in that building knew or should have known there was dying in that classroom. And they should have done more, acted with urgency. Family members said they were hoping for more than a verbal dressing down. But they're saying we already knew it. They were powered. Ultimately, some action was taken right away. The city's mayor announcing right before this meeting, the acting chief of Uvalde's police department, Mariano Pargas, now on administrative leave. The report citing no evidence that any officer who did learn about 911 phone calls coming from inside rooms 111 and 112, including Pargas, acted on it to advocate shifting to an active shooter style response. There are also windows into heroism. Let's, go, let's get these kids out of here. Let's get these kids out of here. Students apparently being pulled out of the building. And this heartbreaking hallway exchange with Officer Ruben Ruiz right after the initial gunfire. Learning his wife, Eva Morales, a teacher, was shot and dying before his weapon was taken and he was removed for trying to engage the shooter, according to Texas DPS. The only teacher who did survive in those two rooms, Arnulfo Reyes, shot twice, believes Morales could have been saved. If the law enforcement officers on scene would have allowed him to continue pursuing the gunman. Yeah, she would have probably lived. And I, I, I think she's one of the ones that they had said that also bled to death. All 11 of the students in his class didn't survive. Sam, it's stunning, it's shocking, and, and there's also disturbing information revealed about the gunman's past, his history online, what he was known as in that community, red flags galore. All of it is shocking. Savannah, you go back to years, to his childhood, where there are reports that he was facing bullying and social isolation, and that according to this report, Savannah, he moved over to social media platforms and gaming as a way to sort of grow his identity, find a refuge from that, but it took a darker and darker turn. We're talking about on platforms like YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Yubo. He was known within the gaming community and within those social media platforms as the school shooter up to a year before the massacre. So the warning signs were there. The question is, 
Why weren't people saying something? Why wasn't someone intervening? That also, Savannah, we know he said to an acquaintance he was saving for something big. He asked two people to buy him firearms at the age of 17. It did not work out. And then he bought those guns when he turned 18 years old. We know what happened after that. Within, within days of his 18th birthday, Sam. Thank you very much. You know, uh, they, they sort of hit it on the head in saying that the more we learn about this event, the worse it gets. It doesn't get any better. Uh, all the reporting, all the inf new information we find out, it just makes this whole situation more horrible. And, uh, you know, I, it pains me also. I'm, I've never been a big fan of the press. And it pains me to hear these weasels from the press uh, criticize law enforcement. But guess what? They have every right to right now because this was a huge, huge, as they say, systemic failure. And well, go ahead. You can't defend it. Well, I think the public has a right to know details of incidents that take place throughout the country. And, you know, the press sometimes is not always our friend, but however, in this particular case, the communication between law enforcement and the media to, you know, inform the public was horrible, horrible, horrible. One of the things that I think in the report that was actually straightened out now that this report came out, there was the, uh, you know, the, the, the rumor going around that there was an officer that got on the scene and he saw the shooter and he could have taken a shot at him, but he didn't. They said that they believe now that that was actually a coach from the school evacuating children from the school. So I think that that's another story that's been debunked, that there was no officer that had a clear shot at the, uh, the shooter before he got into the school. Uh, it went back and forth, but there's been so many things now. Another thing we found out from the report is that there were three doors that were unlocked. Three doors going into that school during class. Unacceptable. I'm sorry. Those are the things that need to be changed going forward. You cannot have a situation where there's three doors that are unlocked in a school. I'm sorry. Just unacceptable. Well, you could probably go to any high school, any junior high school in the United States and come up with the same uh, same problems, you know. Like it's not just uh, endemic to Uvalde. You'd probably go to any school in this country and find some of the same security um, problems. And, you know, you can't, I, I guess what I'm saying is you can't bat 100%, but we're going to have to because it, this is unforgiving. Schmitty, thank you for, for the $5 super chat. If the emotional mental scars for all who are affected by this, May though way more than we know were visible, we'd be unrecognizable. Yeah, I mean, look, we spoke about the emotional scars from this are just uh, just unbelievable. Phil, why don't you go to a quick uh, commercial for Joe Murray? Here. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the feds. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a very competent attorney, a good friend of police off the cuff. And uh, you could give him a call whether you're in the New York area or not. Uh, the other thing we wanted to talk about, folks, if anyone has a small business uh, and would like to advertise on police off the cuff, real crime stories, you could just email us at police off the cuff 
the, the number one at gmail.com and uh, tell us what you have in mind and uh, we'll set you up with it. And uh, it's easy to reach us and uh, police off the cuff one at gmail.com. You know, folks, another thing in from the New York Times article that, uh, and again, all new information keeps coming out uh, every day. While many officers interviewed by the committee said that they considered Mr. Arredondo to be the incident commander, others said they were not aware of who was in charge. The report said creating a chaotic vacuum of leadership that the largest state and federal agencies could have moved to fill but did not. Despite an obvious atmosphere of chaos, the ranking officers of other responding agencies did not approach the Evalde CISD chief of police, the report said referring to Mr. Arredondo or anyone else perceived to be in command to point out the lack of any need for a command post or to offer that specific assistance. You know, folks, that's not unusual. There was a problem at 9-11. The fire department put the command post in the building that fell down. So when you think of an emergency organization that was has been around for a couple of hundred years, they made a huge mistake putting, and of course we know it was a mistake now, but they put their command post in the building, the incident building. I mean, you would think that that's got to be written somewhere not to do that. So even, you know, the FDNY, the NYPD can make these huge mistakes. So think of a small police department like Uvalde and the amount of police departments that responded to this incident. Yeah, they obviously were not ready for this, but I think we made some really good valid points about communication. You know, again, I brought out the point that there were so many different uh, police agencies, whether they be from neighboring towns, you had the border patrol there. We don't know if they had the same frequency to communicate on. So that could be one of the things. And again, the information that was coming from within that classroom uh, should have been transmitted to everyone on the scene or anybody close to that classroom that was ready to breach because those were very, very important facts. Uh, we talked about it in the past that perhaps there could have been some type of, uh, you know, distraction done based on the information coming from inside the classroom. Again, uh, the, the person that was calling 911, you could have garnered information as to where the persons were that were uh, uh, away from the shooter, where they were in the room. So that way, if you did breach, they would not get hurt in crossfire or anything like that. So those those were very important facts. And uh, listen, uh, we have the greatest police department in the world in New York City. And I think if there was an ESU team, emergency service unit team outside that classroom, I think it would have ended a lot quicker. And I'm not trying to, you know, uh, throw roses at the NYPD, but I think that just, we, we train better where there's more of these incidents that they, uh, you know, uh, become experienced with. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it was a horrible situation, but don't let the emotional part of it, uh, scare you away from the true facts. We have to just deal with it. We have to try and get better at this. Uh, this is also from the New York times article still is seen on a surveillance video released as part of the report. Local police officers, including Mr. Arredondo, arrived minutes later but retreated down a hallway after being met with gunfire at the doorway to one of the classrooms. Even as more heavily armed officers arrived, along with ballistic shields, they did not attempt to enter the classroom again for over an hour. That was the wrong decision, Mr. McGraw said in days after, saying the call to do so had been made by Mr. Arredondo, who he said 
was the incident commander. Mr. Arredondo told the committee that he did not consider himself to be in that role during the massacre and thought someone else would take that role. But the committee found that he should have been the incident commander based on the school district's own response plan for a school shooting, which calls for the school police chief to become the person in control of the efforts of all law enforcement and first responders that arrived at the scene. Mr. Arredondo, in his own interview with the committee, said he might have acted to breach the classroom sooner had he known there were still victims still inside. We probably would have rallied a little more to say, okay, someone is in there, he told the committee. I find that um, difficult to believe that he didn't know there was anyone in there. Yeah, I I agree with you on that, Billy. You you heard one of the officers in the videos that you played say, we got to get in there. We got to get in there. And that was the right approach to take. Now, I'm not going to campaign for a suicide mission, but a lot more could have been done to end this quicker. And again, when the breach was made, it was very successful. Nobody on the breach team was injured uh, and the shooter was taken out. So I think we have that as uh, evidence that this could have been done a lot quicker. And again, uh, when they retreated from the door, I think that was the right response at the time. You're getting, you know, shots are coming through the door, but you needed to get back in there, get in there, breach it quicker, you know, and unfortunately it just wasn't done. Phil Leo, gun-free zones of preventing the law-abiding CCW is inexcusable. That male teacher, Yvalde, had had no recourse but to play possum, said. Compliance against armed robbers, terrorists, is no guarantee of safety. You know, Phil Leo, um, people have mentioned in this chat about gun-free zones. Whatever whatever politician has thought of gun-free zones, it needs his head examined because a gun-free zone is only adhered to by law-abiding people. Criminals don't adhere to gun-free zones. They, that, they, there is no such thing as a gun-free zone to a criminal or someone who's going to be an active shooter. So the mentality of a gun-free zone is ridiculous. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you'd be like a trapped rat if, uh, you know, there's no guns in the area to protect a school or more, whatever it is. So I I don't agree with gun-free zones. That's not the answer in this situation. I think you want a Bill Cannon or a Phil Grimaldi that's armed in a situation where, uh, you know, they could be in some public place and, you know, uh, an incident takes place and they could possibly stop a shooter or save a life. So, again, and there's many, many law enforcement officers, active, retired military, uh, people that have uh, concealed carry permits throughout the country. And again, uh, I don't think that most people that have that kind of background would hesitate to act in a situation where a person starts randomly shooting at somebody. You know, even some of these shootings, these active shooting incidents, incidences that have happened on college campuses. I think you would hope that there was a a, uh, open carry or a a licensed gun owner on that campus that could take this guy out. I mean, to take the gun from the good guys, I mean, it's just, it's, it just shows how far we are. And I know a lot of people that listen to this show that are from uh, the UK, that are from Europe, that are from other countries, they don't understand our second amendment and you probably never will, you know, and people that, you know, are pro-Second Amendment, you know, I'll give you an example. Look at the, the two years of riots when government refused to protect the citizenry from the rioters. That is all a Second Amendment proponent needs is to show those videos of how government would not allow the police to protect the populace. 
And it's happened numerous times, Billy. It's happened in the past. It happened in that two-year period you, you were talking about where you cannot allow destruction of property and life. That's just not acceptable in a modern uh, society. It's just not acceptable. And they did. They allowed it. They allowed it. They allowed it. And again, that made more people go out and buy firearms and buy ammunition to protect their family. I mean, you know, we have that right under the Second Amendment and you have the right just in general as humanity to protect your family. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, focusing on guns uh, to, to take the guns away from the good guys, wrong approach. That's the wrong approach. Again, we've talked about it. Go for the trigger puller. Uh, there were so many red flags. And in every one of these situations, there's numerous, numerous red flags and they're not acted upon. So I guess this is what we have to focus on as opposed to trying to stop law abiding citizens from carry guns. Now we're not advocating that everybody should have a gun. If you have mental issues, obviously you shouldn't have a gun. And if you have a criminal history or criminal background, you shouldn't have a gun. But barring that, we have the right to protect ourselves in the United States. Kay Cooper, just look at the Indiana mall shooting yesterday. A 22 year old man carrying was there when the killer opens fire and he ended the killer ASAP hero. There you go. But you know something what's funny, Kay Cooper? That story will be squashed. It's buried. The press, it's buried. The press will squash that story because the press is anti-Second Amendment. So it's just the, the way this politics is in this country, it, it's crazy. There was another shooting stopped by a guy that just grabbed the guy before he started shooting. The story's dead. You can't even find the story anywhere. It's just amazing how the media controls the narrative. And listen, I'm all for the freedom of information. Believe me, I'm very, very into that. But you cannot take a story like that and bury it and then say that you're a, a fair and balanced media. It's just not the case. And the media in this country... Uh, they influence a lot of different things. And the political narrative in this country is controlled by the media and a, a lot of other things. They they actually controlled uh, the election that took place a year and a half ago. There was all types of election interference. I won't say the election was stolen with fake votes and stuff like that, but there was definitely media interference from several media outlets. That's I'll just leave it at that. Fremont Pathfinder, you seem like you're anti-Second Amendment. And one of the things is that there will never, ever, 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 ever be gun confiscation in this country. And that's what the left wants. They want gun confiscation. It's never going to happen. If you want a civil war, you'll try that. Uh, yeah, well, well, that's it. And I, I think Fremont Pathfinder may be one of these people that wants gun confiscation. But that, I'm telling you, that will never, ever happen. And. And the fact that three people were killed first, that's tragic. When nobody says that that's, oh, that's okay because the guy took out the shooter. No, of course, it's tragic. But you have these people that are crazy, go off on hinge. And if you don't have someone close by to put a stop to it, you wind up with 20 people dead or 25 people dead. So three people lost their lives. Very, very tragic. But the fact that there was a person that was carrying a gun and put the, the, the shooter to sleep, so to speak, that's what saved other lives. I mean, and, and, you know, by the time the police get there, you could have 20, 25 people dead. Absolutely. Uh, folks, tonight, uh, Phil and I are doing a show at 815. Uh, there's sort of a, um, a problem in this country. And the problem is with law enforcement, because of all the pressures and the defund the police movement, uh, the anti-police movement, Officers are fleeing the job and not because of retirement. They're quitting 
police departments. The NYPD has an epidemic of it. The other day, there was a six-hour wait to retire. And they've lost so many people. And so what does law enforcement do? What's the NYPD's answer to that? Let's lower the standards. Let's let anyone come on this damn job. Instead of maybe giving them a raise, supporting the police more, getting these morons from the uh, the uh, city council that pass laws like bail reform, diaphragm law, uh, get rid of qualified immunity at the state level. That's what's making officers flee this job. Anyway, we're going to do a whole show on that tonight. And uh, tune in at 8.15. Uh, we got some good ideas about how to correct this problem. It's funny, Bill. I had a conversation last night with a detective from the squad that I used to work at in Coney Island, the 6-0 squad in Coney Island. And I'm going to talk about the conversation that I had with this uh, detective. I don't want to name him because I don't want to bring any uh, negative publicity to him, but some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty powerful information that he gave me that to the state of affairs within the police department in New York city, as well as throughout the country. But so stay tuned for that tonight at eight fifteen PM. It's going to be a great show. Fremont Pathfinder. No, I don't want a gun. The USA is ridiculous. When I was in Canada, I was safe and not safe. Canada's ridiculous. This that guy, he wants gun confiscation. He doesn't want someone to be able to protect themselves in this country. That is the basic tenet of law, is justification and to be able to protect yourself from deadly physical force. That guy's ridiculous, the president of Canada. So, Bill, you know, I got a comment here to Fremont, uh, uh, Fremont Pathfinder. Uh, I don't want to attack a subscriber. However, this is the greatest country in the world. And even though we have these situations and these problems, we live in a great, great country. That's why people are coming over the border every day to try to get here. And not one or two. We have thousands and thousands because we're a great country. And if Canada was so great, you can go back there. Or if you're there, God bless. But don't knock our country. We have a great country. We have a lot of great men, uh, women and men in law enforcement that to protect this country. And we have a great military. And the things that are going on now are not a result of uh, the, the great country that we have. It's just we're going through a bad time right now, but it'll get better. Trust me, we live in a great country. We have great people. Folks, uh, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. As this, Again, I said, uh, tune in tonight at 815 to find out why officers, police officers are fleeing the job, especially in New York City. Until then, God bless and have a safe day. Stay, stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.